Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with talks between the US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and his Chinese counterpart Yang Jiaqi in Rome after leaks from the Biden administration warning that Russia had asked China for military support in Ukraine and that China was considering sending drones. This prompted an angry and defensive response from the Chinese Foreign Ministry and we'll get an assessment of today's negotiations from Zach Cooper, co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He previously served in the Pentagon and White House under the George W. Bush administration, first as Deputy Assistant to the Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and then as Assistant to the Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism on the National Security Council. We will discuss Sullivan's warning that if China supplies weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine, it will be an historic mistake and a turning point in global politics. Then we'll examine further the possible cost of China's support for Putin if sanctions are extended to China and what kind of blowback there could be against Chinese products as much of the world is outraged by Russia's brutal attack on a civilian population. Joining us is Ian Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, researcher and senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations who is currently writing a book about how history is used to legitimize and challenge Communist Party rule in China. He closely follows China's efforts to bolster its soft power around the globe and previously worked as a news correspondent in China before being expelled in 2020 as part of worsening tensions between China and the United States. Then finally we'll look into why India's leader Modi is tacitly siding with Putin by avoiding criticism of his attacks on Ukraine and speak with Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include Fearful Symmetry, India and Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia, and his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security, and we'll examine the accidental firing of an Indian missile at Pakistan. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Zach Cooper, co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He previously served in the Pentagon and the White House under George W. Bush's administration, first as special assistant to the principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy and then as assistant to the deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism at the National Security Council. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Cooper. Wonderful to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And we don't know, at least I, I haven't got, seen any reports of what came out of the meeting w- with the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and the top Chinese uh, diplomat in 
Rome. Do you have any readout of what was discussed? We know that ahead of the meeting, Jake Sullivan had said on the Sunday broadcasts that there were concerns that Russia had reached out to uh, China for military aid for its the situation it's in in Ukraine, including drones and perhaps a relief from sanctions as well. So what, do we, what have we learned so far? Well, we don't have a readout yet of exactly what happened in the Rome meeting, but I think it's fair to assume that there is unlikely to have been any major progress. Uh, this has been a late-breaking story, the possibility of China providing actual support to Russia as part of its invasion of Ukraine. And I am guessing that the Chinese side will feel uh, quite frustrated that the U.S. raised this publicly before doing so in private. I think the meeting in Rome is likely, therefore, to have been fairly acrimonious. I certainly not expect any major breakthroughs. Um, but we haven't yet heard the exact uh, outbrief of, of what happened in the meeting itself. So is this a case of the Biden administration preemptively using intelligence, which is what they've done, I think, rather skillfully so far, by basically letting the world know what Putin is really up to, and they, they were proven correct. So is this a yet another example of that? I think you're exactly right that the United States has been very skillful in providing intelligence not just to allies and partners, but around the world, to global publics, about exactly what Russia was going to do in terms of the invasion of Ukraine. And they're doing the same now on China. And it's very smart because if they can get this messaging out before China makes a decision, it both will shape China's decision, potentially, um, and it establishes uh, more credibility on this issue. And so I think the goal here is probably for the U.S to uh, force Beijing to reassess whether it really wants to stand by Russia and whether it's willing to accept the cost for doing so, which I think could be potentially quite substantial. And the disclosure of information ahead of these decisions, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a tough call to make because potentially they could be burning sources and methods that they've used to collect that information. But this is an important issue, and so they're clearly willing to do that to, to try and convince Beijing to alter its approach. So, Zach Cooper, do you think that there's any... I mean, we're in a way, we're looking for divisions within the elites in Russia in the sense that Putin is isolated and we saw that extraordinary National Security Council meeting where he dressed down his top intelligence advisors as though they were errant schoolboys. And you wonder whether or not within the establishment, particularly the more economically minded and realistically minded top Russian officials that they are against this war and would like to find a way out of it. Does a similar situation exist in China, do you think? Because Xi Jinping is just a sort of boring communist just trying to bring back Mao, and I don't think he's particularly imaginative. He's not even that well educated. So I'm assuming that he's a hardliner, but are there any other people in the Chinese establishment that might be trying to moderate Xi Jinping's kind of reactionary impulses? That is a fascinating question. I will tell you, uh, in discussions with Chinese experts the last week, uh, there are a number of Chinese experts who feel that she has gone too far um, and, in fact, you know, have been uh, publicly discussing the possibility of China changing its approach. Um, 
The the question, though, and you're right to have stated it this way, is whether Xi Jinping is really willing to listen to those people or not. And I think as we've seen with Putin, when you have a dictator, especially a dictator who is personally in charge and doesn't have a um, have to be beholden to a party or other type of large group, um, sometimes the information flow is particularly bad. And clearly, this has been the case with Putin. I think he didn't understand how difficult the invasion of Ukraine was going to be. I think it's possible that this is also the case right now with Xi Jinping. And he may not understand just how much damage he's doing to China's cause over the long term by standing with Putin. So part of the question here is, uh, can we fundamentally change China's choices on major strategic issues or not? And I think the Biden administration is trying to test this right now. And if we see Beijing adjust its approach on supporting Russia, then they will see that as, as, uh, as both success and evidence that China can still change its decisions if the U.S. switches in. Um, and if not, I think that will send U.S. policy in a very different direction. It will have to be much more hard-edged than it's been in the past. And again, I'm speaking with Zach Cooper, who's a co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He previously served in the Pentagon and White House under George W. Bush's administration, first as a special assistant to the principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, and then as assistant to the deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism at the National Security Council. Well, it's obvious that Putin is in trouble in Ukraine, and I spoke yesterday with a couple of military analysts, including Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer in Moscow, who's a military analyst there, and I was quite surprised the extent to which he was he was saying that the Ukrainian army is doing incredibly well, and he thinks the war will go on into the fall, and I said, you mean in a form of guerrilla war? And he said, no, the Ukrainian military will still be intact and still fighting that they've uh, completely surprised the Russians, and he thinks they're getting better, the Ukrainians, and meanwhile the Russians are getting worse. So we know that Putin is, uh, has asked for 15,000 fighters from Syria who are experienced in the most bloodthirsty house-to-house, street-to-street fighting, and he's also brought in more Chechens, and Khadirov, uh, the warlord from Chechnya, Putin's, Putin's buddy, who's also he's the guy that he outsources assassinations to, He's in uh, Ukraine uh, today, and they're bringing in more Chechens as well. So this would indicate, surely, Zach Cooper, that Putin is scrambling around, and I, it wouldn't be surprising if he called up his friend Xi Jinping and asked for help. I think that's right. He, he does appear to be doing everything possible to bring in more forces to ask for help from the few remaining allies that he has. And China is the big one. Um, and, you know, this puts China in a particularly difficult position. Just uh, about a month ago on February 4th, Putin and Xi agreed that they were embarking on what they called a no-limits friendship, um, which, which they said was sort of better than the Cold War alliances that had existed. And so um, Moscow and Beijing have thrown in their lot together uh, but my guess is that many in Beijing are now getting very worried that they have attached themselves to the wrong country and the wrong leader. And this puts Beijing in a very difficult spot. Either they support Russia, as they appear to have promised to do just a month ago, um, but risk 
more criticism, not just from the United States, but from Europe and from others in Asia, or they uh, take the, the serious risk of angering, um, you know, uh, Putin. And, and I think that is a real danger because Putin is prone to lashing out, as we've seen recently. And so if you're sitting in Beijing right now, there is no great option here. Um, you're in a world of difficult decisions. And no matter what you do, uh, there may be some real downside risks. Well, already it would seem that Putin has really done damage, or at least the sanctions have done massive damage to the Russian economy. The ruble is in free fall. The stock market has been closed now for two weeks. And there's been massive amount of capital flight. A lot of his reserves uh, in foreign currencies have been frozen. But worse than that, I think he's losing his uh, markets in Europe, uh, not immediately, but gradually. He'll be losing his oil and gas, and particularly gas markets. Uh, Nord Stream 2 is suspended. So that would indicate to me that China, at least I don't know whether Sullivan brought this up, but if China were to face those same consequences... Wouldn't it be a lot worse? I mean, public opinion seems to be so outraged by what Russia's doing, and rightly so, and understandably so. That could extend to China and Chinese products, don't you think? I think this is a real risk. And in fact, if you Chinese today, it was down substantially. Now, I don't want to suggest that this is the only reason. Um, you know, there are two other very bad uh, things that happened for the Chinese stock market over the weekend. One is that it appears that COVID is spreading quite rapidly in some major Chinese cities, including places like Shenzhen, which is one of the main manufacturing sites for a lot of advanced electronics. Um, and then the, the other danger is that uh, the Communist Party announced that it's going to curtail some of China's top tech leaders, including uh, Didi, which is effectively China's version of Uber. Um, now, you know, we've seen uh, a significant decline as a result on Monday in the Chinese stock market. It could be those two things, but I think it, it probably has something to do also with this concern that Beijing is aligning itself more with Moscow and that that will open up its companies to many of the same risks that uh, Russian companies are facing now difficulty in accessing Western capital, questions about whether American or European companies are going to continue to operate in China in the long term. I don't think we're there yet, but the fact is that people are going to start asking these questions. It's going to increase the risk premium for being in China at all, and that will have a significant downward effect on the Chinese market. So this is a very risky period for Beijing. And it comes at a very important time because you have to remember that China is in the middle of uh, a new growth cycle. It's just set a target of 5.5% economic growth for this year. Very few people think that that's possible, even before the news of the last few days. But this puts the Communist Party in a quite a tricky spot. Uh, it's promised high growth numbers, but it's hard to see how they get anywhere close, given the news that's coming out of Beijing. So the residue of the Evergrande scandal is still affecting the economy, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and that is, in fact, you know, another reason that they're struggling uh, in, in the stock market uh, in just the last few days. 
it, there's real worry about contagion within the Chinese stock market. Um, and, and, you know, even if they can manage that contagion, it's still going to increase fears that over time, these debt levels of state-owned enterprises and some private companies are, are just going to be a real problem that is not easy to, to manage. So there's got to be a kind of rift, even though it would be under the surface. We know that she's even moved against some entrepreneurs and some of the Chinese billionaires, and he's sort of trying to bring back kind of communist-style economy and controls. So one would assume that there's quite a, a clash going on there, at least under the surface. How is this going to play out in the long run? As I mentioned earlier, she comes out of a military family. That's pretty much all he knows. He's certainly turning back the clock as much as he can and sort of trying to create the cult of personality around him as a, as Uncle Xi. But he's not imaginative, and it's a very dull future for the country if he succeeds in turning back the clock. And I assume that the younger generation and the more entrepreneurial business types don't want to go in this direction. So how do you think this is going to play out over the long term? I think you're exactly right. This is in many ways a question about whether China moves forward or backward. And in some ways, she represents uh, moving backward, right? His view is that actually the party needs more control. It needs more centralization of power. And part of the reason he thinks this is actually his lessons from how he reads Russian history or really Soviet history. He thinks in the 1980s that the Soviet Union made a big mistake. It tried to spur economic growth by opening up, by reform, and that led to the party losing power. And his view is that even if it's going to mean slower growth, the most important thing is the party remaining in power, and he's willing to tolerate slower growth as long as he can ensure that. So I think if you're a Chinese business person and you're asking, you know, what does the next few years look like? The answer is probably crackdowns on major Chinese technology companies, or those are going to continue. They may even accelerate. And I think you'll see a lot of Chinese leaders uh, in, the, in the business community uh, increasingly uh, trying to leave China. I think they're going to be fairly pessimistic about the business environment there. And it's not clear that Xi Jinping is really that worried about that dynamic. Uh, I think what he worries about, number one, is a revolution. He worries about the party losing power. And so if, if he has to lose a couple of business leaders or um, take down a couple of big Chinese technology companies to ensure that the party stays in power, he's certainly willing to risk that. Um, and, and I think that's what we've seen over the last few months. Well, certainly it's clear that, in fact, interestingly enough, Gorbachev visited China at the time of the Tiananmen uprising. And the Chinese clearly learned the lesson that they embraced perestroika, economic opening, but they won't touch glasnost, meaning opening up dialogue and debate. So they've learned the lesson that they've had a pretty boisterous kind of perestroika, but absolutely no glasnost. And they're not likely to ever go in that direction under Xi. So just in closing, do you think that the one thing that China could export short of arms to help Russia out in Ukraine, uh, which would, as we discussed, be pretty explosive. Would they be able to export their massive 
Orwellian control of the people in the surveillance state that they've created, because Putin is turning the clock back now. He's no longer pretending that they're anything but a dictatorship and they're cracking down on all dissent. And they probably uh, could use some of China's surveillance techniques. In the long term, I absolutely think that's that's one area to watch. Uh, we have seen China and Russia both move in this direction of trying to ensure that they control their populations through controlling information, uh, surveillance and monitoring. And, um, you know, it would make sense for them to try and apply those techniques, not just in their own countries, but certainly in areas where they have a large amount of control and influence as Russia is hoping it will have in parts of Ukraine. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see those sort of tools exported. And in fact, there's some evidence that China has been exporting some of those tools, not so much to Russia, but but to others. Um, but it's clear now that Russia needs as much help as it can get. And this may be one one area of interest for Vladimir Putin in the weeks and months ahead. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Zach Cooper. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Cooper, who's a co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. He previously served in the Pentagon and the White House under George W. Bush's administration, first as a special assistant to the principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy, and then as assistant to the deputy national security advisor for combating terrorism at the National Security Council. Can take a brief station break and back examining further the possible cost of China's support for Putin if sanctions are extended to China and what kind of blowback there could be against Chinese products as much of the world is outraged by Putin's brutal attack on a civilian population. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ian Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, researcher, and senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's currently writing a book about how history is used to legitimize and challenge Communist Party rule in China and closely follows China's efforts to bolster its soft power around the globe. He previously worked as a news correspondent in China before being expelled in 2020 as part of the worsening tensions between China and the United States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Johnson. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously would want to talk about the meeting in Rome between Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and the Chinese Foreign Minister or Deputy Foreign Minister. But before we get into that, there was always a speculation that if if Putin were to invade Ukraine, China may take advantage of that sort of global distraction and move on Taiwan. That doesn't appear to be happening. Is there anything on your radar that would suggest that's even a possibility now? I don't think it's too likely uh, for something like that to take place because China is still, I think, figuring out its capabilities. It's very complicated. Uh, A military invasion like that wouldn't be something that could be done very lightly. Um, I think China is still a few years away from being able to undertake something like that. And so... 
I would suspect that, they, especially now, um, having seen the reaction to the Russian invasion, that they would be very cautious about trying to do something like that. So the U.S. has been, uh, the Biden administration has skillfully been using intelligence, which normally is kept very private, making it public. They called out Putin on his intentions on Ukraine, and they got it right. And it looks like they've done the same now with China, probably from some intercepts, obviously running the risk of burning sources and methods. Nevertheless, it looks as if Russia not only asked China for help for drones and perhaps economic help as well, but it looks as if China might have entertained that possibility. Is that your understanding, Ian Johnson? Well, I haven't seen the intelligence reports, obviously, so it's hard for me to judge what actually happened, but it's clearly part of an information policy by the Biden administration to put pressure on Russia and China to let the Chinese know that they're aware what what China is doing and to kind of put pressure on China to take a more constructive role in this. Right now, China has been playing a, a not very constructive role at all. On the contrary, it's been sort of sitting on the sideline, taking pot shots at at other countries and has not is been sort of trying to play both ends where they keep their partnership with Russia while not uh, angering the West. And I think the United States is trying to push them into taking sides, so to speak. Into, so this is part of that. Well, they're taking sides in terms of propaganda. I mean, the Chinese reiterated that bogus claim that the U.S. had a secret bioweapon and chemical weapons plant in or lab in Ukraine. And so they've been sort of echoing Putin's often absurd propaganda. No, that's true. Um, and so this is where I think they've been sort of sitting on the sidelines taking pot shots. It's, it, that's what I was thinking of, those kind of claims and always um, criticizing both sides in the conflict. You're not criticizing, but calling on both sides of the conflict to um, exercise restraint as if it were an equal fight and as if both sides were equally to blame. This is essentially trying to have it both ways. And so, yeah, they are they are clearly... Um, not, you know, in any way being constructive in this. So in terms of the work that you've done on closely following China's efforts to bolster its soft power around the world, obviously the Ukrainians at the moment are fighting for democracy and the rule of law, and that should be clear to everybody. Here in the United States, we our democracy is in trouble with voter suppression going on, etc. So we're not in great shape. But nevertheless, it's so clear what Ukrainians are fighting and dying for. So how can that be applied if this thing gets out of hand with China and and China then has to overtly side with Putin and start supplying drones? And then as Russia's economy tanks, the Chinese come to their aid. I'm sure they won't necessarily be philanthropic about it. But nevertheless, what's your sense about the use of soft power against Xi Jinping, who's trying to roll back the clock and turn China back into the land of Mao. Do you think there's a possibility that democracy as a concept is getting a breath of life now with with all this focus on the heroism of the Ukrainian people? And could that be used against Xi Jinping? I'm assuming that's it, just like Putin is afraid of democracy right on his doorstep. 
I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I think that's one of the that's one of the key things that unite Russia and China. They, they, there are a lot of things that, that potentially divide them. They are potentially rivals in, in in certain ways, and have problems, and historically have had problems in their relationship. But what really unites them is that they're both uh, against open societies. They're against democracies, um, and that's why when I think about this, I like to use the word democracy and not say the West, because democracies don't just exist in Western countries. You know, uh, so so I think that this is something that they that they really uh, don't like. Um, this is something they're concerned about. You know, it's it's interesting looking at social media uh, the past few days. I've been looking at it quite closely. The government's been having a hard time scrubbing. The Chinese government has been ha- having a hard time scrubbing everything, every report on Ukraine, and especially people who are pointing out how Ukraine's the victim, how they're resisting, and there are independent Chinese journalists even on the ground in Ukraine who are doing video blogs on. The situation there and the government's been erasing some of them but not getting to all of them and to me that's a really interesting trend because it shows that the government is having a hard time controlling this narrative and 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 repeating the russian claims because after all the russian claims it doesn't take too much to realize how absurd they are that this isn't just some limited military operation it's a full-blown invasion any image you see is of buildings being destroyed and things like that so i think that it is getting harder and harder for the government in beijing to mask the fact that they are involved in a foreign policy debacle to some degree and that xi jinping's foreign policy hasn't been very successful you mean wolf warrior diplomacy? Well, yeah, no, even just allying with Russia. You know, this is this mm. is sort of one a big centerpiece of what she's doing. And one of the problems China has is that it doesn't have very many allies. It has its allies are countries like North Korea, Myanmar, Cambodia, maybe sort of Pakistan, and that's about it. They don't have major wealthy, powerful countries as their allies. So you know, this is sort of a coup. Eh? They, they got this partnership, not in a formal alliance, but a partnership with Russia. It's a UN Security Council member. It's a nuclear power. It supposedly had a big, powerful military, etc. And they're ideologically aligned with China in terms of suppressing open societies around the world. And so this seemed like a big thing. And this is why they had several meetings, sort of a bromance between Xi Jinping and, and Putin. And now this decision to to ally with um with russia has, has proven to be a mistake and yeah you mentioned the wolf warrior i think that was another mistake of, of china over the past five years completely alienating countries around the world with this very aggressive somewhat obnoxious foreign policy um tone of voice that they've used and again, I'm speaking with Ian Johnson, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, researcher and senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's currently writing a book about how history is used to legitimize and challenge Communist Party rule in China and closely follows China's efforts to bolster its soft power around the globe. And he previously worked as a news correspondent in China before being expelled in 2020 as part of the worsening tensions between the US and China. So... The one thing that China has around the world, it may not have been successfully making inroads diplomatically, and as you mentioned, it's kind of a part of a rogues gallery in terms of countries that that it has alliances with, but it does have markets everywhere, right? And that's essentially where I'm wondering 
where we're heading, Ian Johnson? Is it possible that if things deteriorate and if Xi Jinping, who you know is sort of unimaginative and a kind of boneheaded communist trying to turn back the clock, and as you pointed out, he's not that well educated, and, and so if he's going to go his way and back Putin, will he pay a price in terms of international markets? I mean, the Europeans are obviously a huge market for Chinese goods, so is the United States. Could this be the beginning, not so much a boycott of Chinese goods, but at least a kind of a lessening of the attraction for buying Chinese? Uh, I think that will be harder to see that connection because so much of the world's economy is intertwined. And, you know, people, when they're buying goods that are made in China, it doesn't it often doesn't even say I mean, it does say made in China, but I, I don't think people buy it as a Chinese product per se. They're buying a component in something else. And so I think that it, it China's economic impact is unlikely or its economic power is unlikely to be affected by this. Well, but we are, of course, sanctioning Russia. And I'm wondering whether at some mm-hmm. point or other those sanctions could be extended. Is that a possibility? I think that would be really hard. I think it's easy to sanction Russia, frankly. Um, Russia is not a, does not have a big economy. It's got an economy about half the size of Great Britain's or France's. Um, so it's on a par maybe with, say, Spain. And it's primarily oil and gas, right? And if you take that out of the equation, Russia doesn't play much of a role on the international economic stage. China would be really difficult. China, I mean, we talked in this in the United States about decoupling, um, and that's a really complicated premise because you're so much of the world economy is, is intertwined. It's the world's second largest economy, um, et cetera, et cetera. World, it's largest trading partner of of, of about a hundred countries uh, around the world. So it's hard to see similar sanctions taking hold against or being implemented against China. There would be, it, it would cause not just a small, you know, it wouldn't just cause an increase in, in inflation, such as it's, it's happening, say, with sanctions against Russia in higher oil and gas prices, it would cause a worldwide depression. Um, and, and that's something I think that would be really hard for policymakers and, and voters and, and people to stomach. So, I would be skeptical if there could be something similar, even if they were to do something like invade Taiwan. I, I'm not, I think there'd be a lot of backlash against China, but I have a hard time imagining that people could really, say, decouple from China. But could the United States and the, the Europeans, given the stakes for democracy now, with the Ukrainians fighting and dying for democracy and the rule of law, Mm-hmm. Would it be possible to kind of for the U.S. to launch a soft power campaign? As you as you mentioned earlier, Ian Johnson, Xi Jinping, Putin, and company are not motivated by ideology, except in the case of Xi Jinping, of course, a communist ideology. But Putin has no ideology, and I'm wondering whether you could broaden it out the kind of rogues gallery of anti-democratic people who are dedicated to destroying democracy like Putin and Xi Jinping, but also Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi leader, or soon-to-be Saudi leader. I mean, he won't even take phone calls from the President of the United States. Uh, and we get, what, 50 years' worth of military support to uh, keep that kingdom going? I mean, it seems a little ungrateful. Is there, <laughs> is, there, is there a possibility to start 
drawing the line because the real struggle in the world surely in this post cold war world is between the rule of law and democracy versus autocracy and kleptocracy yeah no that's true i, I mean it's funny when you when you mention saudi arabia and we think of russia also and these are countries that are only really important because of energy and i think if we're able to slowly transition away from fossil fuels and move to greener technologies that are sustainable, et cetera, et cetera, we can sort of not exactly wash our hands of these countries, but we don't have, they don't have as much power over us anymore. And that would be, you know, talk about climate change, that's, that's important as well. But that's another reason would be simply to not have the tail wagging the dog all the time in, in dealing with some of these countries that are just, it's really not in our national interest to be so closely aligned with Saudi Arabia and, and having to, um, for, for so many years, try to make nice with Putin, et cetera, while realizing what kind of a, a person he was and what he'd done in, in other parts of the world. I mean, it didn't just start with Ukraine. Of course, we you know, you go back, it, was, it wasn't just Ukraine in 2022, it was Ukraine in 2014, it was Chechnya, it was Georgia, and, and, and so on, and, and, and Syria. So we've known what these people are like, but we've held our noses for a long time because we sort of needed them um, partly for energy reasons. And I think that that, if, if we can indeed fully move away from fossil fuels, that will have a knock-on effect in the geopolitical sphere as well. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Ian Johnson, my understanding is that there's a new outbreak of COVID and it may even be a new strain in China and they've had to shut down a number of cities, including an area where most of their high tech is. Um, mm-hmm. What do you know about what's going on? Their vaccination, uh, Sinovac, is not particularly effective. I mean, they, they've really dodged a bullet on the origins of COVID, and they were very aggressive. You know, obviously, when the Australian government suggested maybe we should have a, a proper investigation, they, they had a hissy fit and boycotted Australian products and uh, exports, etc. Wine, exactly. <laughs> so, what's your sense about what's happening in China? Could COVID, in effect, come back to bite them? Yeah, I think I, I don't know if there's a new strain in China, but certainly the growing number of lockdowns show that even just with the Omicron variant, that that their strategy is not working. And it initially, if when when people didn't really have any other tools to fight COVID their zero tolerance was defensible. And, and we saw other countries have that as well. New Zealand, Australia, et cetera, had similar policies. We used to lock down the country, close it off as much as possible and, and track and trace and so on. But as we have now effective um, vaccines, and if we use the effective vaccines, we can reopen our economies. It will still be painful and there will still be people who are affected. And there's a lot of still a lot of problems associated with it. I don't mean to, to say that it's all, you know, blithely that it's all going ahead wonderfully in the West. But I think that this is a, a way forward. And I think that China has not followed that because of, I would say it's sort of a, a form of scientific nationalism, if you will, that they want to develop their own vaccines and they pushed the old technology vaccines, which are clearly not effective, that have not been demonstrated in any scientific study to be effective, and they're only sort of like 50% effective. So by, by holding on to these and not adopting the advanced, the mRNA vaccines, they've 
forced their country to adopt to keep to hold on to this zero tolerance strategy long after it's been effective or long longer than needed um and and even to a degree where it's possibly not even working anymore so you know and the thing is they had the they had an agreement with the german company biontech which provided a lot of the know-how in the Pfizer vaccine, right? And they had a joint venture with BioNTech about a year ago. They could have been producing their own mRNA vaccines, um, similar to the Pfizer-BioNTech one, but they've chosen not to. I think they want to reverse engineer it and do it themselves. But so far, they haven't been able to do it and are stuck in this dead-end policy. Um, so in a way, it's similar to the foreign policy problem by holding on to this outdated approach, this approach that isn't working, um, they're, they're facing increasing problems. And I think a lot of this is because of this year, 2022, is a big political year in China. And the, Xi Jinping is going to be appointed to an unprecedented third term in the autumn. And so the basic MO in China right now is batten down the hatches and hold your breath until November when she gets his third term, but events are spinning out of control and they're not able to do that anymore. Well, Ian Johnson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Anytime. And again, I mean, speaking with Ian Johnson is the Pulitzer Prize winning writer, researcher and senior fellow for China studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's currently writing a book about how history is used to legitimize and challenge Communist Party rule in China and closely follows China's efforts to bolster its soft power around the globe. He previously worked as a news correspondent in China before being expelled in 2020 as part of the worsening tensions between the U.S. and China. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into why India's leader Modi is tacitly siding with Putin by avoiding criticism of his attack on Ukraine. Hmm, I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China Walk to myself alone Get you and keep you in my arms Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University in Bloomington. His books include Fearful Symmetry, India and Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, and India Since 1980. India, Pakistan, and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sumit Ganguly. Good afternoon. So thanks for joining us, Sumit. And India's role in this war that's going on now in Ukraine, which is absolutely hideous because it's being prosecuted against a civilian population. And it's like literally watching the attempted murder of a country in plain sight. And it's obviously outraged the world. I don't know what's happening in in the media in India, but Modi, the leader of the country, is clearly, I don't know whether he's on Putin's side, but he's certainly not taking sides, uh, both at the United Nations Security Council and in the General Assembly. India abstained. And that's pretty conspicuous, isn't it? So what's going on? Why... Why is Modi tacitly siding with Putin? 
He's tacitly siding it with Putin, principally because of India's acute dependence on Russia for a panoply of weaponry, close to 60% of its arsenal, civilian uh, of its conventional arsenal, is uh, of Russian Soviet origin. And it's extremely difficult to break this dependence, even though India has been diversifying its weapons purchases in recent years. But nevertheless, as I said, close to 60% of its weaponry is of Russian origin. It has recently signed a contract to purchase something called the S-400 missile battery, which is an air defense system which the Russians were willing to provide at a reasonable price to India. And having recently signed this contract prior to the invasion of the Ukraine, India is loath to jeopardize that security relationship. And consequently, this explains Modi's fence-sitting posture. Well, Russian weapons aren't doing that well in this war. And I don't know whether it's the weaponry or the soldiers themselves. The morale obviously is low because in many cases they were lied to. They're saying they were involved in an exercise and now they find themselves killing their brothers and sisters next door who share the same language and culture. So, But what are you seeing and hearing in the Indian media? Is anybody raising moral issues of conscience here about India being a democracy and what's happening in Ukraine is democracy itself is under attack and the Ukrainian people are fighting and dying for democracy. What disturbs me is that while I have been reading the Indian press, there have been few expressions of moral outrage. At best, I have seen a handful of individuals, some of whom I know quite well, who have argued that it's time for India to reduce its dependence on Russian weaponry and thereby not find its hands tied as it, uh, is, uh, uh, as it is under the present circumstances. But there have not been significant expressions of moral outrage. And in fact, there is an element of whataboutery that, you know, who, uh, yes, this is unfortunate what has happened in the Ukraine, but after all, the George W. Bush administration invaded Iraq on completely dubious premises in 2003. So the world is a nasty place and we sort of have to live with that. Um, and the Russians are doing uh, something which they deem to be um, in their uh, national interests, which Frankly, I find appalling that that kind of argument, but I have seen uh, elements of that uh, of those arguments in the Indian press. And some, I think, arguments are also some uh, statements, I think, are also the product of active Russian disinformation. I don't have incontrovertible evidence for this, but certainly one can make that inference that there's Russian trolling going on in the Indian press? Uh, I have a strong suspicion that's the case. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to understand why Modi has any appeal, but he clearly does. And he's obviously a you know, religious fanatic and a Hindu nationalist. And one wonders where the country's going in terms of its 
tradition of civility and democracy, etc., he's uh, Modi's party just won some elections, to, uh, which is pretty surprising. So what's his appeal to the Indian people? Because I, I imagine one thing he has in common with Vladimir Putin is that they're both ultranationalists. Yes, they are both ultranationalists, and Modi is an unabashed Hindu nationalist, and a certain appeal does exist for Hindu nationalism among segments of the Indian electorate. That said, that's not a complete answer. The complete answer requires us to look at the state of the opposition, which is in almost complete disarray, particularly the principal opposition party, the Indian National Congress, the party which at one point brought India its independence in 1947. Today, that party is a shell of its former self. It is in organizational disarray. It has no coherent ideology, and it has the most inept leadership. All this redounds to Modi's advantage. Well, the one thing that I wanted to bring up with you, because that's it's completely in your wheelhouse, Sumit, and that is, you know, the fact that you've been studying India and Pakistan and their nuclear weaponry and the potential for a nuclear war and a lot of arms control and military analysts have always suggested that the most likely area of the world where a nuclear war could break out is in between India and Pakistan. And on March the 9th, apparently... An Indian missile was accidentally launched at Pakistan, and it landed in Pakistan, and fortunately there were no casualties. But it's alarming, is it not? And we're, here we are with the war going on in Ukraine, with Putin making nuclear threats and rattling the nuclear saber. Having something like this happen uh, is scary, to say the least. It's downright scary. And um, it took a full two days before a formal statement was issued from New Delhi regretting the incident. Um, quite frankly, I think an immediate response was called for from New Delhi to, uh, to reassure Pakistan. And while the Pakistani National Security Advisor Moeed Yusuf has been fulminating. It is to the credit of the Pakistani military that their response was actually remarkably restrained. Uh, of course, there was the standard boilerplate about how irresponsible it was on the part of the Indians to let this happen. But beyond that, they did not resort to military maneuvers or did not resort to troop movements and the like. So the Pakistani military under these circumstances does deserve some credit for exercising remarkable restraint. And what is the explanation? How, how did this happen? Do we have any idea about how a missile could be accidentally launched on a tripwire kind of border where you have tremendous tension and you know, nuclear weapons on both sides and on the Pakistani side there's always been the concern about their command and control given how the country is riven with terrorist organizations. This is deeply disturbing. There's no 
question about it. And there's no debate about that. Um, but thus far, uh, the information that we have in the public domain is extremely limited. All the Indian authorities have said is that it was the result of a technical error. Unfortunately, and I was actually reading up about this this afternoon because I was writing on this matter uh, for, an, for a publication. And um, it, uh, during the Cold War, similar technical glitches did occur. Uh, and on several occasions, both the Soviet Union and the United States inadvertently went to nuclear alerts because there, were there was false information or flawed information about possible missile launches. So uh, sadly, these things are not entirely unknown, even in far more technologically sophisticated states. So we don't know what happened. Um, we don't know who did it and why and how. It's just, it's going to be swept under the rug. Is that your conclusion? No, invariably, the very feisty Indian press will uh, will probe and we will get bits and pieces about what transpired. We may never get the full story, but we will get some information about what what happened at this uh, missile testing range and how the trajectory of the missile could go so terribly awry as to land well inside Pakistani territory. Well, so just in closing, uh, Simbit Ganguly, you mentioned the feisty Indian press. It sounds like in many ways the pro-Modi BJP kind of um, propagandists in the press are very similar to the Russian propagandists. Uh, in Russia, they basically, everybody works for Putin, but they often have some token person from the opposition. And, and they've all, for the, some time now, they've had an American who's had to sort of be shouted at while everybody screams at him and he can barely get a word out. And that way they can have the pretense that they're actually having a debate. Now, of course, it's the press and they've even dispensed with this theater now in Russia. Now it's just pure government propaganda and kind of police state control of the press. But I noticed there was a shouting match from some popular anchor on Indian TV who got the names of his guests wrong, but it felt like I was watching RT. To explain further, if you will, what's going on. Oh, there is certainly a segment of the Indian press, particularly um, uh, the um, electronic uh, media, which has become completely co-opted, which has been completely co-opted by Modi and his followers. Um, and uh, the quality of debate in certain quarters of uh, uh, mass media in India, particularly television, has become extremely coarsened, taking on the characteristics of Fox News here in the United States. Um, it's not really news. It's mostly propaganda and all too often shouting matches instead of uh, thoughtful civil debate about which men and women of goodwill can disagree. Instead of that, um, um, it, it has uh, really taken on a very coarse and callous quality, uh, and the quality of debate has declined 
precipitously. Well, Sumit Ganguly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, for this opportunity. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University. His books include Fearful Symmetry, India and Pakistan Under the Shadow of Nuclear Weapons, India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave And this land here of the free When time was back in America One more light goes out in the